0: Welcome to episode 60 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony. And we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. The sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother.
0: Hey, brother. How are you on this fine October evening? I am feeling great, especially because we are celebrating 500 years of Reformation. Happy Reformation Day.
1: Happy Reformation Day. It's it's like centennial, it's like quincentennial Reformation Day. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
0: Yeah, that was some good mathematics and good <laughs> qualitative expression of something quantitative. That was beautiful.
1: Yes, yes. And we bypassed a uh, major reformation celebrations all month long anyways we just didn't do anything really for it <laughs> It's all <laughs> good though it's all good
0: That's because I we're protesting like we're protesting against what was normative and we were just like we're listen we're not going to do that but the thing is I'm excited about this episode because we've got some good subjects we got some things to give away right
1: We do have some things to give away and we are going to be the worst kind Of giveaway people Because we're not going to tell you when in our episode We're going to give it away So you have to listen to the whole thing
0: I love this because Listen Tony, this is biblical This is how people, Christians, should give away stuff Because it comes to you like a thief in the night You don't know It could be at the 10 minute mark It could be at the 30 minute mark It could be all the way at the end It's coming when you least expect it
1: It might come twice One of them is a secret that surprises (laughs) you And one of them is actually at the end You don't know You don't know (laughs) One of them is one of them is there and one of them is taken and and you're going to be in joyous rapture over these books.
0: <laughs> two, two entrants are walking on the road. <laughs> <laughs> one receives a book. One receives nothing.
1: <laughs> but you won't know that you receive nothing until the actual end of the episode because we're going to we're going to make you listen to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, that's true. It's going to be great. You're going to love it as much as we are loving this process.
1: Yes. And special announcement. We are only going to announce the winners through the show. So if you hear your name on the show, you will have uh, two weeks to contact us before we draw other winners. And if you don't contact us, then we're going to throw your name out. We're going to draw new winners and we're going to announce them again in a couple weeks. But we will publicize all of that dates and everything on the various social media channels. We're just not going to publish the names on the social media channels.
0: Right. So how it'll work is Tony and I throughout this episode, will give the name of the book and the winner. And then if you've won, what your job is to do is to respond using the email address that you entered with, with your physical address so that we can show up at your house and throw books at you.
1: Yes. And you send that to reformed uh, brotherhood
0: at gmail.com reformed brotherhood at gmail.com. Yes.
1: And if for some reason we've got some reports that emails bounce from there sometimes, and I don't know why, if for some reason it does, then uh, private message us on Twitter or on Facebook to contact us. So that way we at least know that you're out there trying.
0: So let's get after it. What are you affirming this week, Tony?
1: I am affirming along with probably 99% of the rest of the internet. I'm affirming stranger things. Oh, interesting. Have you seen this show?
0: I know nothing about this. I I know nothing. So what is the big deal? Oh,
1: man. I'm not going to give any spoilers because we would lose all of our audience if I gave any spoilers. But season two just released, um, apart from a little bit of language issues that I think are probably just swearing for the sake of swearing, um, they have, you know, the main characters are like early middle school late elementary school kids that love to swear which it i mean it's realistic kids are learning how to swear and they they don't sound normal when they swear which is it's kind of funny but it shouldn't be but other than that um it's just kind of a suspenseful perfect like sort of halloween spooky creepy um sort of a monster movie which is really awesome and so we've been watching this the beginning of season two and i just can't like i'm I'm wanting to be done with this podcast already so I can go watch more episodes. I have a problem. It's like an addiction.
0: <laughs> well, I've heard you're not alone, though. I've seen some stuff online where people have just basically stopped everything in their lives to, to take the time to watch the entire thing in one sitting.
1: Yeah. Yesterday when we started watching episode one, um, our Netflix wasn't working right. And I was like ready to throw my Roku remote through the television because I couldn't get Netflix to work. I was so angry. I was like, there is no fruit of the spirit going on. I want my Stranger Things and I want it right now.
0: There's no fruit of the spirit. Uh, all right, so here, here's the thing, because I, I kind of feel like I'm disappointed right now. You can you give me something about what this show is about without spoiling it? Because honestly, I know nothing about what it is.
1: Yeah, so it's these four, um, four kids who are sort of like I said, sort of late middle school or early middle school, late. Um, elementary school kids. It's set in the eighties. So like it's our generation. And so they're, they're kids that are like out riding their bikes at night. They're doing all, they're running around, you know, stuff that kids just don't do anymore. Um, and through a series of events, they encounter, um, sort of the reality of, of something beyond what we know as our existence and our reality. Um, and I want to say anymore cause that will definitely spoil it, but it, it's kind of a, a sort of like an extended episode of the twilight zone is a good way. And there's like twists along the way. Um, so we're in the second season, which is so far is living up to every expectation I had.
0: Wow. That's high praise actually.
1: Yeah. So what about you, Jesse? What are you affirming?
0: Let me ask you a pretty, a pretty critical life question. Do you own any denim button down shirts? I don't believe that I do. Okay. That's what I'm affirming. (laughs)
1: That you don't, or you're affirming denim button-down shirts?
0: No, no, sorry. I'm affirming that everybody should own, especially dudes, should own a button-down denim shirt because my wife recently purchased one on my behalf, and I always thought that I wasn't hipster enough or cool enough to wear a denim shirt, but I'm finding out that I really kind of like it. Like, there's something (laughs) about a (laughs) button-down denim shirt that is pretty exceptional, It's kind of like, I'm not talking about the Canadian tuxedo. I'm just talking about like a kind of classic dark denim shirt. I don't know. I feel like a different person, man.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you know this or not, but you actually are kind of a hipster a little bit. (laughs) It's the truth. I mean, you've got like the big beard. You, you had the thick rimmed glasses before everyone else kind of did. You have, you love like your craft beer. That's true. Sometimes you're drinking it out of like a sort of like a fancy
0: goblet thing.
1: I'm a, I'm a craft beer guy kind of cup. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you drink it out of a Mason jar, which would be like the next level.
0: No, but here's the thing. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. I do routinely drink in a Mason jars, like the big old ball jars, like that you use for a can of pickles or something like that. That is my go-to water cup.
1: Yeah, it is. So you definitely are hipstery enough to wear that denim shirt.
0: Yeah. So then basically what you're telling me is I'm just catching up. Like this is just the uniform I should have been wearing all along. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Okay. I'm glad this is good chat. Glad we did this. All right. So for denials. I feel like we've
1: come through a breakthrough now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I just got a bunch of counseling. This is great. Um, So for (laughs) denials, uh, what are you denying? Um, I am
1: denying pumpkin guts. So... We live at the church. We have in the past had activities on Halloween night at the church, and so we haven't had an opportunity to carve a pumpkin for quite some time. But the activities of the church are not happening this year, and so we actually bought pumpkins, carved them out, carved the faces on them, and stuff. Nothing spooky or or de- you know demons or witches or anything. Just fun faces. But you gotta like get in there and like, yeah. sli- like scrape out the slime of the pumpkin yeah. guts, and then it's like under your fingernails, and it's like yeah. So, I mean, we, we like, stretched out the the garbage bags on the kitchen table and, like, taped them down and everything. So the cleanup was pretty good. But, man, you just got it you get in there, like, up to your elbow and, like, squash.
0: And it's just gross. Yeah, it's you—it's a commitment. That's for sure.
1: Well, and, of course, you know, you cut the top off and, and then Ashley hands me the pumpkin. I was like, go ahead. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait a second here. She's like, oh, dad always used to scrape the pumpkins out for me. And I was like, oh
0: that's true. How so did this happened. <laughs> my, my parents had, have four kids and yeah, my father was a champ. I think we'd all cut the tops off and just pass that sucker yeah. down and he would just dig out all that nastiness for us. So dig right in. Kudos to him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We discovered our dog loves pumpkin seeds though, which is good because they're a healthy little treat. Oh really?
0: Hmm. Well, that's good to know. Um, by the way, I wanted to clarify for everybody eavesdropping on our conversation by our choice that when you say we live at the church, that's not a euphemism for you're always doing activities at the church, but you actually live in the same building.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. We actually live in the <laughs> parsonage of the church, which is the second and third, most of the second floor and, and all of the third floor. So when we, we just, we haven't been able to do Halloween stuff, trick or treating, you know, giving out candy as individuals for since we moved here. Um, but now we can this year cause we don't have our, our normal Halloween activity this year.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's exciting stuff. Yeah, we're we're pretty
1: stoked about it. So
0: what are you denying this week? So I'm going to deny, and this is gonna sound really extreme, so I'm just it's Reformation Day. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm denying devotionals. Not because they're not great and not often helpful, but just because, man, we gotta get into that word. So yeah. I, I even use one as kind of a complimentary to some of my reading, but I was just thinking again this week, how much better the scriptures are than anything else anybody could write about it. So even like the helpful things like the, this is it our daily bread, this daily bread. What is it? Yeah. Our daily bread, our daily bread. Like, again, that's great. But I feel like that the irony of that is like our daily bread is like the actual daily bread and not the, the derivative daily bread. Like that's kind of like, this is croutons made from the daily bread. You know what I'm saying?
1: I do. And when you read it, it's like, you know, it's like a little quarter page pamphlet and like ninety five percent of what you're reading is devotional material, and then there's like one verse at the yes.
0: bottom. Yes, it should be like the appetizer to get you into the full meal. So that, that's all I'm saying. I'm just I'm just denying that, maybe just for myself, but I'm denying it this week.
1: You heard it here first, folks. Jesse doesn't want you to do devotionals.
0: <laughs> I'm I am against me and R. Scott Clark, evidently against yes. all devotionals, and Michael Horton
1: like a tiny bit.
0: <laughs> I'm in good company. I'm somewhere on that continuum and I'm just happy to be with those guys.
1: Exactly. So, I thought tonight that we would continue our denials a little bit. Um I was inspired when we had Nate Pickowitz on the show a couple of weeks ago and he just straight up denied the pope. I was like that's that's one denial I can get behind. So, I thought tonight that we would deny uh, feast and holy days, but two specific feasts and holy days. Nice. Right. So in the Roman Catholic church, they celebrate um, all saints day, which gets sort of Latinized and translated into all Hallows Eve, which is where we get the word Halloween. Um, all saints day is on November 1st. So all saints Eve or all Halloween, Halloween Eve is the 31st. Um, and then following all saints day is a day called all souls day. So we're going to get into some of the specifics later. But All Saints Day is a day where the Roman Catholic Church celebrates all of the people who have died that they believe have achieved the beatific vision, which means they've they've gotten through purgatory right. or possibly skipped purgatory altogether and have made it into the throne room of God. And they're they're fully sanctified and glorified. All Souls Day is on November 2nd, and that's to pray for all the people that we think probably— are in purgatory and haven't made it out yet. And so there's, you know, we're talking, we talk about the 95 theses and the 95 theses primarily were Martin Luther's attempt to seek clarification on the subject of indulgences and the formal church's teaching on the subject of purgatory and indulgences. He actually thought that um, the Pope probably didn't understand what was happening in Germany, Um, And so he was trying to clarify what the church actually taught regarding these things. And then what he found out was that the church did actually teach all this nonsense that John Tetzel was, was pushing. And so that kind of sparked more going on later. So we thought since it's Halloween, since it's kind of a spooky time of year, we would deny those feast days, but we would also talk a little bit about personal eschatology, which we kind of skipped. um, And then also maybe talk about ghosts yeah. since
0: we want to have sort of a Halloween-y topic. We are so on trend with this. And this episode is
1: going to release after Halloween, so we're a little bit late, but it's okay.
0: <laughs> Even better. Everybody will be sick of thinking about this by the time they get to us. That's pretty much our sweet spot.
1: It's probably easiest to explain the um, Roman Catholic position on personal eschatology in contrast with the right answer, which is Protestant's answer. So the Protestant position, which we explain in our eschatology section, is that when a person dies, if they are in Christ, they go immediately to be with Christ in spirit. Their body remains on earth and decomposes. They go to be with the Lord in spirit immediately. And then on the last day, they'll be raised to new life, reunited with their body, glorified. All those things happen. The person who is apart from Christ, they immediately go um, to hell. And now there's some discussion about whether they go to kind of like a, a place that would be hell-like, but isn't hell itself, since hell is kind of like the, the final state. Hell is usually seen as like the contrast to the new heavens and new earth, Is there's something called hell or the lake of fire. Either way, the point is that they immediately go into the wrathful presence of the Lord, and they're suffering in spirit. And on the last day, they will also be raised and reunited with their body, but they will suffer bodily and spiritually for eternity as they suffer under God's wrath. Right. Are we tracking
0: so far? Yep, that's exactly right.
1: So that's the Protestant position. It's pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of bells and whistles. Um, in fact, we deny bells and whistles. And so um, get them out of here. The Roman Catholic position, however, is like infinitely more complex. So in the Roman Catholic position, Um, you can enter into a state of grace and exit a state of grace. Um, So we're not going to talk about all of that. But if you die in a state of grace, you probably are not completely sanctified. Now you could be, but most people are not. And so Catholics believe that um, people who die in a state of grace, but have not been fully sanctified, go to a place called purgatory. And the word purgatory has to do with purging or cleansing. Um, Sometimes it's um, conceived of as like a fire like a, like a purging fire. Sometimes it's conceived of more of like a fountain or like a bath or something like that. But the point is that it's not a pleasant place to be. Um, and they tie that to the fact that in the Bible, in the new Testament, sanctification is often connected with suffering. And so there's this purifying, uh, purifying aspect to suffering that happens in the life of a Christian. And they extend that logic past death. Once a person has been purified for a sufficient amount of time to sort of, it's not quite right to say to have atoned for their sin because only Christ atones for sin. But to sort of um, deal with the temporal consequences, the, you know, if you think about like um, uh, a soda can, right? And you, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, Jesse, where you, you come home and you you've got like a 12 pack of seltzer or something and you drop it. And then you get that can that's like all dented and dinged out. Right. It's like expanded and dented. Yep. Right, so that's what they would say is the soul that is not fully sanctified is a dented, dinged-out can, and so in purgatory, what's happening is all those little dents and dings are being repaired and put back to the way they're supposed to be, to order to get you into this pristine, sanctified state to be able to go and have the beatific vision. Right on. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, what's crazy? This is this, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. What's crazy is that because of this like mechanism that they have. They actually allow for departed saints, those who have gone into the throne room of God and have had the beatific vision, particularly Mary, but not just Mary, um, to come back and sort of manifest themselves. Right. So Mary is, is frequently seen all over the world. And the Roman Catholic Church would say, yeah, sure, she just comes back and sort of visits once more. Right. So they're actually making a way, they're acknowledging the possibility of people who have died— Still being present in spirit on Earth, so they're they're saying more or less ghosts exist, like positively mm-hmm. saying ghosts exist. I think they would probably deny the idea of like these restless spirits that sort of under right, the earth, right? But I don't I don't really know why they would deny that. I don't really understand the the metaphysics behind how one group is able to come back periodically and another is not. Right. So what do you think about that?
0: Uh, I think that's jacked up. but it's, So the way it, my, non-technical, my non-technical explanation of always how that kind of eschatology works in the Catholic Church is basically like the TSA line at the airport. So you you want to get through the line, obviously. that That is the end goal. But some are able to move through that more quickly, and depending on how they've died either in or out of grace. But then it's almost as if once you make it through the line, like you're on the other side of the metal detector or the weird thing where they make you put your arms up, whatever that stuff is, once you're on the other side of that, it's almost like you can come back, of course, and kind of encourage or provide some kind of direction to those who are still either waiting in the line or are just getting to the airport. So I agree with you. This is a weird thing to me because describing as a ghost, I'm sure that you're even maybe like your normative um, or nominal Catholic would find that to be somewhat offensive. However, it's six of one and a half dozen to the other to me. Like That's essentially what we're talking about. And that is an entirely like extra biblical idea. Maybe that's, helpful in like a human sense to kind of feel like you have some connection with those who've gone before you, especially Mary. But this is the very thing which like causes Mary to like pop up on like burnt toast and in like all kinds of other situations, because they're sensing that, no, her presence is real. And she's coming into this temporal space in a spiritual sense, but in a way that actually manifests presence. And that's just not something that we find anywhere in the scriptures. So to me, even as I'm describing it, it sounds a little crazy. So, I mean, purgatory is this place where you're basically getting strip searched in TSA and you'd like to, you're getting purged out of that. Um, But then you're making the crossover and then allowing for somebody to come back through. And we find like there's just no precedent for that in the scriptures. Jesus doesn't make precedent for that. Um, Even like a passage that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the Old Testament does not make precedence for that in this way. So to me, it's just way outside the scope of what the Bible teaches.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, to be fair, I mean, we try to represent opposing views as accurately as possible. Um, And so it's really important to note that The Roman Catholic position would say if you die and you're not in a state of grace then you're going to hell and there's no getting out of that so it's not sometimes people picture purgatory as like there's hell and you can like work your way out of hell and into purgatory and then you can work your way through purgatory and into heaven or the other direction they sort of think like well if a person's in purgatory and they're still like not they're not getting it you can sort of drop out of the bottom of purgatory and fall into hell and that's not at all what they would teach if you are in a state of grace you usually usually go to purgatory and you will eventually progress in to heaven. And the reason they would say this that that there's no more sinning in purgatory. So even if you're delaying the most you're doing is you're just spending more time there until eventually you get, you get purified enough to get through. And there's also no transition from hell to purgatory or the other direction as well.
0: Right. It's not, it's not super Mario brothers. You can't like level up. You you still have to die. Like you said, in a state of grace, Yeah,
1: exactly. And so I, I thought it would be interesting. Um, kind of establishing that the Roman Catholic position allows, and, and I think on some levels, I'm not as familiar with Eastern Orthodox position, but I think some of the metaphysics that they use are similar enough that I think you could probably apply that. That's not always the case with Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, but I think in this case it probably is. But the Eastern Orthodox position or the, sorry, the Roman Catholic position allows for kind of these spiritual presences on earth. The the Protestant position I mean, just to be blunt, it really doesn't. And so, you know, I there's a podcast I listen used to listen to by a guy named Michael Heiser, who's an Old Testament scholar that, to be honest, is known for some like really crazy stuff. And his whole podcast was sort of like taking a look at, it was a really interesting premise for a podcast. He would take a look at scholarly journals uh, or scholarly papers that looked at like paranormal research. And so he did a lot of, um, a lot of, episodes on the idea of ghosts or spiritual apparitions and stuff. And what's really concerning, this is a guy who like he works for Logos, the Bible software. He writes articles for Logos. He publishes books about the old Testament and he's saying, well, ghosts probably exist. And he has people on his show that claim to be Christians that are saying like, Oh yeah, I've had I've had out of body experiences. They're not, they're not that difficult to kind of, um, to elicit or to cause. And I'm listening and going, wait a second. You guys are Christians. You're Protestant Christians but you're still also saying that there's room for ghosts to exist on earth. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of ghosts. And and there's a few key passages in the scripture that I'm sure everybody is running through their heads right now, that I wanted to kind of talk through and maybe just touch, touch base and talk through what we think is going on in those passages.
0: Yeah, let's do that. You know what we should do before we get to ghost passages in the scriptures? I feel like you're reading my mind, Jesse. Yes, we are such brothers. Let's do it. We should pick a winner. We should definitely pick a winner. Give me a book and I'll announce a winner. Oh, this is more fun for me. So who is the winner of the great book, Christ Alone by Stephen Willem? Let's see.
1: Now I have to announce there was no nepotism or simony going on with this drawing, but my good friend, Chris Lilly, Chris Lilly, who uh, I went to college with and who recently moved back to our hometown in Minnesota has won the Christ Alone book. So, Chris, you can hit us up at reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com. Um I already have your address, but just to make sure that everything's on the up and up, if you could touch base with us through that email, we'll
0: get that sent out in the mail for you. Yeah, let's do one more. How about uh, Who Won Faith Alone by Thomas Schreiner? So this is the book... That launched a thousand,
1: uh, you know, if you think of the Iliad and the Odyssey, there was Helen of Troy, the, the face that launched a thousand ships. I feel like this book is the book that launched a thousand blog articles.
0: Yeah. So we have high expectations for whoever wins this.
1: So we have Donna Kozar. So Donna Kozar has won this book. You can email us at reform at gmail.com and we will get that sent out to you. And we will um, figure out the date for when that uh, expires and make sure that that is widely publicized as well.
0: And we'll expect uh, several hundred blog posts from you about this book.
1: Yes. Yes. At least several hundred.
0: (laughs) Only on this podcast could you win something for free and then be burdened with all kinds of responsibility.
1: Exactly. So let's go back to our topic. So Jesse, you have a verse that we selected ahead of time that I'm sure everybody is pointing to in other shows about ghosts and stuff. So why don't you read that section
0: out of, out of uh, is it 2 Samuel? First Samuel? 1 Samuel 28. First Samuel 28. So in this section, as probably many people will be familiar, we have uh, Saul who's really had this descent into disobedience against God. God's already said the kingdom is going to be given to David, taken away from you. And the prophet at the time, of course, was Samuel. And by the time we get to First Samuel 28... Um, Samuel's dead, and Saul desperately realizes that he needs to hear from the mouthpiece of God, and he's unwilling to go about it the right way. So what he does, he breaks his own law and goes to a diviner, and he asks that this woman, who's basically a witch, as the scripture tells us, would the witch of Endor, would bring up the spirit of Samuel. And this is in verse 15. So she goes to this process, and this is what happens. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Ghosts. Boom. Who are you going to call? Ghosts in the Bible. So here's the thing about this. I I do think this is one of those passages that often gets brung up in this context because it's got kind of this ghost-like vibe to it. Uh, but it's clear that, like, the the main—that's my technical uh, kind of description of this— it's clear that this passage is all about presenting necromancers, mediums, those who are trying to bring contact with the dead in a negative sense. And that's completely inappropriate for us as Christians to, to do. But I think to get to the heart of your question, and I, I'm guessing we're going to be in line with this, is that what we're seeing here is this is— God, in a sense, still intervening and in bringing up Samuel specifically. So it's not like it's a a spirit or some kind of derivative representation of Samuel, but it is that dude, uh, which is why he responds in that way. I mean, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah. So I think I think we can kind of lay out a couple options, and most of these options have fairly decent representation throughout reform history. So I don't want to I don't want to speak pejoratively of them. Some of them I just I just think they don't work. So the kind of the, what's actually the most common from my study, which is limited, but from my reading, the most common reform position is that this is a demon that, and, and the, the reasoning for it being a demon is that it can't actually be Samuel because there's no such thing as ghosts. So the, the reasoning is it, it can't be a ghost because ghosts don't exist and it's appointed once unto man to die and then comes judgment. So it can't be Samuel So it has to be, it's not an angel because an angel's not going to lie to Samuel and pretend it's, or lie to Saul and pretend he's Samuel. So it has to be a demon. I just don't think that that works because this person who, or whatever this is, he comes and he gives the same message to Samuel or to Saul that Samuel gave him on earth about his, um, his kingdom coming to an end and what was going to happen. And so whatever is going on here, there's some sort of genuine prophetic aspect to it. Um, right. So that's one option. There are some people who would say, well, this isn't an, like an angel or a messenger that's taking the form of Samuel. I, I guess. I mean, maybe um, it's possible. And I, I don't think there would be anything necessarily wrong with an angel taking the form of Samuel. Um I don't know that we would have to call it a lie to say that that's what's going on, but it seems unlikely to me. It seems like when angels come in the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament, there's no mistaking that it's an angel. People know it's an angel, they fall down, they usually try to worship it and the angel has to tell them no. And that doesn't seem like what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. I've actually read some people who would say that the woman made it all up because Saul doesn't see Samuel. He just he the woman screams and she says, "What do you what what do you see?" But she has this sort of like immediate knowledge of what's going on and who this person is. And then all of a sudden who Saul is. So if she was just making this up, you know, if this was just some sort of scam, there's no reason she would think that it was Saul. So there's something about what she sees when she sees whatever this apparition is, something about what she sees. She suddenly knows that she's talking to Saul. So I think um, I think the most likely answer is that God appointed a unique situation and sent Samuel in body or spirit, who knows, but sent Samuel back to deliver this prophetic message. I just see that as the most likely option. Um, I think the other the other options are possible, I guess. Um, But I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't stake a major claim on any of them.
0: Well, and the other options that you just talked about are kind of unnecessarily complicated. Like they have pieces to them that are probably not necessary. It's not what we would be led to believe on the face of just what the scripture is saying. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that basically what happens is, I mean, first of all, I love Samuel's response, which is like, basically, why are you annoying me? Why why are you bringing me up? So there's something about that that seems like tremendously honest and less like spooky, but just kind of like, you're kind of annoying me right now. Uh, The second thing would be, that what comes out of this is a fair amount of truth. And that is that Samuel basically says, Saul, you're going to die in the next battle. Like he's he's very prophetic and he's consistent with what he said in like 1 Samuel 15, where he basically says to Saul, that's right after he's supposed to slaughter all the Amalekites. And Saul basically gives this, this kind of excuse, well, I was going to sacrifice this stuff to the Lord. Like it's really a good thing that I didn't obey. And Samuel's like, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. So the message is consistent because he basically carries that forward and say, if you've rejected the Lord and you've done it again today, like as if that wasn't a low enough point, he basically this quote unquote ghost is the one that's affirming everything in scripture. And so because of that, we understand that there's something here that's more real than just some kind of disembodied spirit. At least that's the way I I understand it.
1: Yeah, I think that's right on. So I wanted to go um, to the only other place in scripture that I'm aware of where we see a dead person back on earth. And it's in uh, Matthew 17 is where I'm going to be reading, but there's parallels in the other synoptics. And this is the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we have, um, starting, uh, chapter 17 of Matthew verse one, uh, after and after six days, Jesus took with him, Peter, James and John and his, uh, John, his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light and behold, there appeared to them, Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking to them when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So the reason that I bring this up is because the interpretation of the first Samuel passage that says, well, dead people don't come back. And so it has to be a demon. Right. Seems to completely miss that this other passage in the scriptures exist. And the reason that I point there is um, clearly Moses and Elijah. Now we can quibble about whether Elijah is actually dead or not, but Moses is definitely dead. So, you know, Clearly God sent for a specific purpose, for a prophetic purpose, he sent Moses and Elijah back to communicate with Jesus. We don't know what they talked about, but again, what we see here, there's a lot of sort of strange common features here. We've kind of joked about it in the past, like, well, how did Peter know who who these people were? Well, how did the witch at Endor know who Samuel was and who Saul was? She just knew there's some sort of like download of information that happens in these instances where all of a sudden, Peter knows who these people are. There's no good reason. There's no explanation for it. I suppose we could theorize that at some point, Jesus was like, oh, I know, Peter, I know you don't know who these people are, but this is Moses and Elijah, you know, like Moses and Elijah, the big guys. But that the text doesn't tell us that. So I think if we're looking at the scripture and we're following the analogy of faith or the, the principle that scripture interprets scripture, what we have here is a text that says, God sent two dead people back for a specific prophetic purpose. So that that automatically means it's not impossible for God to do that. Right. So then I think the next step in logic is, well, are there enough common features in the account with the witch at Endor to say it's another situation like that? And I think there are. I mean, I, I know there are people who would say, no, I don't know what they would point at that's different though.
0: And well, and this stands in contradistinction to that catholic eschatology which you already spoke of because we're not saying that this is normative right in fact the examples are to show that this is outside of what is normal so god is providing these and and by the way what i read when i read that i'm excited because it re-emphasizes for me that god is lord over all things especially the spirit of all people and so he has control sovereign control over that so in these unique situations he's bringing to bear these people. And that must have been like a really precious time for Jesus to have that conversation. So I think that there's something special that God is doing there. And he's emphasizing that, listen, I control all things. If, if I want these guys to come back, I can do that. But that is not my normal process of how I'm going to interact with humanity, that it is important. appointed once for a man to die and thereafter for him to be judged. So I, I love everything about those both occasions. And I, you're right. I haven't thought about those often. as like bookends but in many ways, they are. And when we say things like, well, like ghosts are real or we're just seeing like disembodied spirits here, I think we're actually doing a disservice to the sovereignty of God and the control he has because it seems to disassociate that control from the appearance of these spirits as if they are some kind of autonomous beings that can roam, no matter how we do that. So even as Christians, if we're, you know, like I'm, you've, I'm sure have seen those like weird shows of like ghost hunters or whatever they're called you know, kind of stuff. And I think most of the time what we're seeing there is people who have a real sincere desire to interact with something spiritual and it's just been misapplied and misplaced. And that's what we're having there. But there's also like what, what bothers me and I bristle against is any kind of emphasis in this kind of spiritual realm that is just purely for our entertainment. And that also should convict us that there's something wrong with, What's being done there? That that that's not the way that God intended. So, like where I live is not far from Gettysburg, and this time of year in particular, but almost all year long, there's all these kind of like ghost tours of Gettysburg, and and it's it's all for entertainment. It's just to want to have a sense of like to be startled or to be scared or to feel like there's something spooky going on. And what we're talking about the Transfiguration, and in First Samuel 28 is so much more than that. It's so much more actually beautiful than that. And I think it redefines it when we think about it in those terms, like you've just outlined.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to shift a little bit because I think there are a lot of people and this is where uh, I didn't mean this to be a diatribe against Michael Heiser's podcast, although it kind of is. And that's okay. But there are a lot of people who will now sort of look at these things and will look at the scriptural arguments that are made that people don't come back from the dead. Right. We we may go there, but the parable of the rich man and, and Lazarus. Right there's a gas there's a chasm fixed between here and there and nobody goes back yes right i mean in my mind that passage just as a quick side note that passage destroys all of the roman catholic nonsense about the saints coming back to tell people about the coming kingdom and about that stuff because it specifically says If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, if that's not enough for you, then even if someone is raised from the dead.
0: Exactly.
1: So all of that nonsense about the appearances of Mary and Our Lady Guadalupe and all this stuff, the, the passage in Luke just dismisses that. But where I wanted to go is there are probably some people like the people that Michael Heiser has on his show from time to time or other people who maybe have had strange experiences who are saying like, yeah, I know. And that argument makes sense. But. I can't deny what I've experienced and I didn't mean to make this connection. It just came to me a second ago, but I want to read on a second Peter one starting in verse 16. It says, for we did not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy spirit. Now we've, referenced this passage a couple times. And I think the last time we talked about it was in our Sola Scriptura or our Bibliology section. And Peter here is writing about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what he says is, look, I was there. I heard the words. I saw the glory, but look to the scriptures. Right. And so I want to say really clearly to all the people who are talking about experiences they've had, you know what? I'm, Even if I just grant you for the sake of argument that that was a legitimate experience that cannot be explained by confirmation bias or some sort of natural occurrence um, or your mind playing tricks on you, whatever. Even if I grant you that something supernatural was going on, the scriptural testimony that ghosts do not exist apart from these unique prophetic uh, instances is overwhelming. Right? It's absolutely overwhelming. And so we should take Peter's lead here and say – I've had this experience. I don't know how to explain it, but the scripture teaches me that dead people don't come back. It's not normative for dead people to come back. So, look to the scriptures and don't don't rely on your own experience because how often have we had some sort of experience that was it's just not it's just not true, it's not genuine.
0: Exactly. And in this case where we have these two instances where it's outside what is normative, it's clear as Peter's talking about it here. That these instances were for God's glory alone, like He makes it very complete and very clear. And I I haven't, don't think I've ever heard like a ghost story where that's been the case. So even just to judge it on the case of like why, why is this? Why did this happen? Uh, It's mostly about again some kind of shock or entertainment value or something for the life of the spirit, so to speak, that they, they need to be reconciled. It's all this craziness, which is really far outside the scope of how we understand life and death in the Bible. So we really do need to ask whose glory is this for? We're thinking about it. It needs to be for God's glory. And, and that's clear. Incidentally, that is a book, God's glory alone that I would re- it's by David van John. if you're curious, <laughs> this is a book I would really like to give away right now. Can we make that happen?
1: We can make that happen. So let's uh, do it. God's glory alone goes to drum roll. I'll have to insert a drum roll sound effect, which I'm probably not going to do, but uh, drum roll goes to Samuel Brown. So if you are Samuel Brown, then you should email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com uh, with your contact information. Email us from the email that you use to enter. If you don't remember that for some reason, then get in touch with us and we'll uh, we'll figure that out.
0: That dude has a great name. Samuel Brown, that's like a strong denim shirt owning name. I love that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, he needs to be like a preacher, like Pastor
0: Samuel Brown. Yeah, that speaks. That speaks. I totally agree with that.
1: So Jesse, do you have any other thoughts kind of on the subjects of ghosts or spiritual experiences that, that we can't explain? I mean, I feel like this is a bit of a short episode and that's okay. But I just want to make sure we kind of like land on something practical now that we can you can walk away with.
0: Well, actually, that's where I was going to go. Allow me to make this episode longer. <laughs> so here's what I wanted to ask you is that being said, I, think, I like what you said about how the scriptures draw this really clean line of demarcation between those who are dead and those who are living and then what happens once you're dead. And love that example of Lazarus. So my question would be, when you're talking to people who are particularly this time of year, but kind of just generally, you know, sometimes people will speak of spiritual things, especially of either presence of a person who's died or some kind of spiritual connection with somebody who's gone on. I mean, how do we turn that into saying, that really is not reality. Like while still affirming that what you desire, there is a real thing in terms of a spiritual connection. You're sensing yeah. that there is something more to us and just our physical makeup, that the essence of our being isn't just our hands and feet and our face, but then also kind of contrasting that with, yeah, that's jacked up. Like we, you got that twisted and I, I kind of want to speak into that. You know what I'm saying? What, what, what do we do there?
1: Yeah. So I think, I think, um, you know we're we're reformed guys, and more or less we believe that a presuppositional approach to apologetics is the right way to go in most cases. Um, I'm not dogmatic about that, but right. I think in this case that is the right way to go, hands down. Is that when someone comes to you and they have that kind of experience or they have that kind of position, it's the same as like when you go to a non-Christian's funeral and their non-religious family says, "Well, I, I know that he's looking down on me." Well, why do you, why would you say something? Right. That's rough. There's nothing about your worldview that means that that makes any sense. Um, Right. And so what what you can do is you can, you can listen patiently. You don't patronize them. Don't, um, don't jump straight to you're a crazy idiot or anything like that, but just listen patiently, take what they have to say seriously in terms of don't mock them. Don't um, engage in like straw man argumentation and then just say, well, let's look at that. Right. You you have told me that you are an atheist and you don't believe that there's anything except chemical reactions going on in our brains. So how do we account for this kind of experience that you can't account for? You know, and they might give you some ideas. They might. Well, you know, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. And what you can say is, well, yeah, those are all ideas. Do you think any of those are actually what happened to you? You know, let's say someone says, yeah, I was walking down the street and I saw this like spirit flit across the road in front of me you can say, well, do you, really, do you really think it was a deer? I mean, have you never seen a deer run across the road in front of you? Well, no, I don't think it was a deer. Okay, do you think that it was a ghost? Well, I don't know. Maybe it was a ghost, but I don't think so. If you just probe them a little bit, they're going to reveal how absurd their own explanations are because in the framework of their worldview they can't account for what they experienced. Right? Maybe they didn't experience anything. I mean, probably what they experienced was a weird shadow. A bird flew overhead and they had a shadow or something. But whatever they thought they experienced, they can't account for it. Right. And then what you can do is it's – I don't want to say it's easy, but it's relatively simple. You just say, well, my worldview can account for that. And you can talk about, well, I I don't know that this is what you experienced, but in the Bible there are spirits that exist and they – interact with our world from time to time. And it's possible that that's what you experienced, but my worldview has a way to account for what you experienced and yours does not. And, you know, sometimes people look at presuppositional apologetics and they say, well, it's not very effective, but I will be honest with you. I've had better luck and luck is not the right word. I've had better uh, results and better conversations coming out of that kind of a question or that kind of a interaction than I ever had when I was engaging in like evidential apologetics, where I would try to just line up facts that they couldn't account for. So I think that's a really good way to kind of engage that. Or like this time of year, when people are talking about death, people are more obsessed with. So our culture is obsessed with trying to push death to the side. So we, we no longer have funerals, we have celebrations of life. We no longer bury people in a graveyard with a tombstone. We, we cremate them and we scatter their ashes out to sea and we never have to look at them or think about them ever again. Right? Halloween, this time of year is the one time of year where that impulse that the culture has to push death to the side is not really there. So it's a really good time to just sort of say like, Hey, what do you think happens after we die? Right. We're talking about ghosts. What do you think happens when a person dies? It's just a good conversation starter.
0: Right. And this time of year in particular, it's more about, for me, like the entertainment value of death. Like we we were trying to like emasculate death, basically take away its power and its sting by making it something that we can dress up by or kind of mock or get scared by or be entertained from. And that also is probably the right impetus because we want to be in a place where we understand that something has triumphed over death. It no longer scares the pants off of us, but instead becomes this secondary matter that's somehow overcome. That is good. And I think the reason why the presuppositional position works so much better here is if you start experientially, we're all starting on the same playing field then. And the fact of the matter is the scriptures are, in God's ideas generally, are so far beyond us that when we bring it down and say, well, we're both, I'll talk about my experience, you talk about your experience, that we're going to end up already way behind in terms of trying to explain who God is, because that's not the place where he's put himself. He's up top. He's on top of all things. So I agree. I like that. I've also had great success pairing that kind of presuppositional approach with just asking lots of questions. And this is like, so you probably experienced this, Tony, especially with where you work. This is so delicate because especially when you're talking about kind of the spirit or spiritual essence, and it's tied to somebody who has lost a loved one. It's it's funny you bring up the thing about the animals because I've actually had two uh, fairly good friends of mine recently uh, who are not Christians speak about feeling or sensing a loved one in birds and in deer, actually. Yeah. And something circumstantially happened where, for instance, like a deer appeared and their loved one was particularly attached to hunting. And so they thought that this was an explicit sign, a coming back, essentially, a crossing of that line. And so it was a great opportunity for me to just keep asking questions like, why do you believe that? Why are you sure that that was the case? And to kind of open up both like how they really believe and and what their underpinnings are, but also it gives me an entry point to kind of speak about whether or not that could actually be true in their worldview and then how mine either explains or does not explain that particular instance. Yeah. So I think you're right. Listening is key. And sometimes as reform people, we're not super good at listening. We just want to get our points out yeah. and explain why somebody is wrong. But particularly when it comes to death, suffering, and the afterlife, there's just all this mixed up confusion. But I do see as policies, I think at least in this particular spectrum, and that is Everybody is a prisoner of war on this. And they're just tied up in really bad, either bad theology or just a bad worldview on this. But they desperately want to understand it properly. So it's just true seekers. But we, we got to bring God's word to bear in that. We shouldn't be afraid to make that the paragon, like the touchstone around which we have the entire conversation without saying, well, this is how I feel. That We should right. just eradicate that from our conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one one last, I didn't, I guess, this is going to turn into an apologetics podcast right now. But one last thought about presuppositional apologetics is do it, do it. I want to be careful how I phrase this, because I think sometimes people who are really like rah, rah presuppositionalism can overstate this point. But in my experience, presuppositional apologetics is the only, only model of apologetics that doesn't start from um, a position of weakness. And what I mean is, You know, classical apologetics, which is um, roughly speaking, is trying to utilize like the common language of logic and the common experience of humanity to sort of like construct a argument which necessitates the existence of God. Okay, that's fine. R.C. Sproul would be someone in the, the classical apologetics camp. Then there's the evidential um, apologetic, which tends to be like, well, let's pile up all these different evidences. Some of them are logical, some of them are scientific, and let's pile them all up until it's overwhelming and the only option is is to explain all of them as Christianity. Those are both fundamentally positions of weakness, and they're fundamentally positions of weakness for two reasons. The first is that you're using a common language with unbelievers. And the reality is we don't have a common language with unbelievers, right? Our language as Christians is the scripture, right? That's the language we need to be speaking. Exactly. That's not a language that a non-Christian can speak. They can read the scriptures. They can, they can quote the scriptures, but they don't speak the scriptures. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that you have to make a lot of assumptions that are actually contrary to your own real positions to even start with those. So for example, a lot of times in the evidential perspective, you're going to sort of concede ground to get to like a a middle point where you can meet and then try to move the, move the needle one direction or another. And when you're conceding that ground at the beginning of the discussion, when you have to say things like, well, let's say for the sake of argument that God hasn't revealed himself in the scriptures, you're just giving away your best point, your strongest ammunition. You're throwing it on the ground and being like, all right, well now this is a fair fight. Well, no, it's not. If you've given up your armor, if you've thrown down your weapon, it's not a fair fight anymore because they still have everything that they have. They haven't They haven't conceded anything to you. And I think sometimes people think like, well, if I concede to them, then they're going to be more likely to concede to me. And what usually happens, sometimes I guess that happens, but what usually happens is you've just conceded a bunch of ground that now you have to try to gain back before you're even back to where you started. Where presuppositionalism starts from the position of And this is why it's called presuppositionalism. You start by affirming your presuppositions and you, you say, I'm not going to say for the sake of argument that the scriptures aren't true. I'm going to presume that the scriptures are true because the scriptures are true. Um, So there's a lot more to it. I'm not an expert on um, presuppositional apologetics. And like I said, I think sometimes people state that case too strongly and maybe I stated it too strongly, but I just want to encourage people to really kind of dig into that. And here's, here's a quick example that I think uh, demonstrates sort of what I'm talking about. So I work in a kidney transplant program, and a little while ago, um, one of the nurses, um, I was on my way out. I was going to be gone for a day, and the nurse said, don't forget that we have a transplant tomorrow. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. And She said, make sure you're thinking positive thoughts for the patient. And this person is someone that I have fre- frequently have conversations about spiritual things with. And I know that she is a ardent naturalist. She rejects any sort of concept of an immaterial reality. And I very respectfully said to her, what good will that do? She kind of cocked her head to the side, looked at me and and said, what do you mean? And I said, well, what good will that do? What good does chemical reactions in my brain do for this person on the operating table? And she looked at me and I think she was joking, but I also think she was trying to shoot back an answer. And she said, well, what good does praying do? And I said, well, on my worldview, I believe in an omnipotent God who can actually affect the outcome of the surgery. And so when I ask him to take care of this patient and to guide our surgeon, so the surgery goes well, I believe that that God can actually do that. I said, you don't believe that the chemical reactions in my brain can do anything at all in terms of the outcome of the surgery. And she kind of looked at me and she cocked her head to the side again and said, you know what, I suppose you're right. It doesn't make any sense to think positive thoughts for a person when they're in surgery. Now, she didn't make the jump to be like, so I'm going to become a Christian and pray for them. Well, she's not there yet. But what I've been doing for the last year that I've worked with her is finding these little opportunities to chip away at the armor of her worldview and show her that that armor is actually a tomb. And that as I chip away this armor, she's more and more open to what God wants to do in her life. And at some point, if she's, if she is one of Christ's sheep, he's going to peel away that last bit of armor and give her a new heart. And that's my prayer for her. So I just think it's a, it's not simple. It's not easy, but it it is sort of intuitive, uh, the presuppositional model. So look at that. I'll put some links to, to some books in the, the show notes. Um, but yeah, I think Halloween and the, the, discussions that surround it is a really good opportunity to exercise some of these kinds of presuppositional um, approaches.
0: I actually don't think your description is too strong at all, because even in that great example, which you just gave, isn't everything basically presuppositional? I mean, she's coming with some assumptions of her own worldview and she's making a statement that she believes is based on something. And sometimes we need somebody to ask us why before we realize that we actually have things that we've already pre-assumed before we made subsequent statements. And I think the beautiful thing about presuppositionalism is it's taking serious and outworking that says sola scriptura. And I think that's something that I can affirm. God's word alone. So that is also a really great transition because there's also a book by that same title by Matthew Barrett that we should probably give away as we draw to the end of our show. So Tony, who is the big winner of God's word alone by Matthew Barrett?
1: The big winner is Ryan Storch. And Ryan only entered the contest on the 25th of October so he got in at the last minute and he still won. So Ryan, shoot us an email reformbrotherhood at gmail.com and we will make sure we get your book out to you
0: and we have one more book to give away this is probably the would you say the best known of this particular series?
1: I would say it's the best yeah, yeah. that's right so this yeah, is I would say it is and it was also the most popular
0: of the entries oh man this is the big dog right here all right so carl truman wrote this wonderful book it really is fantastic called grace alone as part of this five solo series who has won this beautiful piece of work i'm gonna butcher this name
1: it's not a name i should butcher but i'm gonna probably anyways i think it's jason weber 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 w-a-e-b-e-r So if you are Jason Weber or Jason Weber and you entered this contest, you should shoot us that email at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com and we'll get your book out to you in the mail.
0: Yeah. So email us up. Congratulations to all the winners. We appreciate you guys listening and entering. And uh, we appreciate Zondervan for basically sponsoring this whole wonderful series that we've been doing. And I know we're both hoping that these are going to be really informative, impactful pieces of reading for people as they go through these books. Yes.
1: So if you were one of our five winners this evening, um, it is this episode will be releasing on November 1st, is when you're probably listening to this. Uh, if you do not contact us by the end of the day on November 10th, okay, that gives you nine days to contact us, then we are going to draw new winners and announce them on the episode that's going to air on November 15th. So if you know one of these people who want a book, then tell them they need to email us. And if you are one of these people who want a book, then make sure you email us. Um, Because as much as I'm sure Jesse wants to hang on to all these books and put them in his own library, we're going to keep drawing names until somebody claims them.
0: Yeah, so send us your physical address or two tickets, airline tickets for me and Tony to come hand deliver the books to you.
1: Yes, that would be pretty epic, I think, if we could could get that to happen.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, if you want to hang out and do a little book club together, you're going to have to send us some airline tickets. That's we're, This is a low-budget podcast. I believe the last time we looked at our budget, it was exactly $0.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely $0.
0: All on faith, baby.
1: Yep. So, Jesse, do you have any final thoughts or closing words uh, about this topic for the evening before we head out for the night?
0: I just want to say how surprised I was that this actually turned out kind of like in a different direction than I thought when we, when I heard we were we had the idea to kind of talk about this. But I kind of feel uh, strangely encouraged and a little bit empowered to take this season and use it in such a way to not be afraid to kind of bring up some good conversation around spiritual matters and not feel like I'm I'm participating in what's corny or kitsch, but kind of redeeming this in a sense, bringing it back. And I liked your idea of making little polite but challenging comments about worldview around death in particular and letting God and the Holy Spirit use those comments to impact people in a way that I don't need to be worried about performing in some kind of way.
1: Yeah. Amen to that. So before we leave, Jesse, we're not going to announce the name tonight, but we have secured a new member for the Society for Four Podcasters.
0: Oh, this is so good. Yeah, we definitely have. And I'm actually pretty stoked about this new podcast going to be joining us. Yes. So if you know me, I dropped little hints throughout
1: the evening, actually, about who this new podcast is. So Easter eggs, if you will, which is also an Easter egg. So you'll have to wait and find out. So we're going to let them. We're going to let them announce on their show first that they have uh, joined this ragtag band of misfit podcasts. Uh, And then we're going to have lots of announcements and great fanfare and announcements and lots of announcements. So stay tuned for that. Uh, If you are subscribing to our reformed podcast society, as the way Chris Shinbin on the reformed outlook puts it, uh, if you're subscribing to our iTunes mega feed with all of the, uh, society shows, then we will add this new podcast to that feed and you will get all of their episodes automatically. And fear not, because if you subscribe to their show already, it's not going to double up your episodes. The way that I've got the feed set up, it will actually only download the episode once. Boom. Boom. At least that's the way it works on my phone. So don't, don't try to sue me if it doesn't work that way on your phone.
0: So, so here's the, here's the thing about that. If you love reformed content, you should just subscribe to this field feed because it's basically like reformed radio, with all these different voices and all these different crazy podcasts of different formats. So it, you should really go do that because it's a lot of fun, actually. It's really great fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the only things that we really have in common, I mean, some of us have some things in common, but the the only real theme of our show is that we are reformed podcasters. So you have everything from... Um, pastors and theologians and um, law students running podcasts and Canadians and Americans. We have all sorts of different voices, but we all, we all share this common reformed faith uh, and and we want to live our lives in light of what the Bible teaches. So check out that feed. Um, You can find it on iTunes or anywhere else you can get podcasts um, or you can also uh, head to our website and we will uh, have that posted as well.
0: All right. Well, until next time, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.